you today a message out of my heart, out of the Word of God. Last week we talked about, is America a Christian nation? And today I want to deal with part two. I'm calling it the dangerous drift. The dangerous drift away from God. And let's look at this passage now. This is Jesus talking in Matthew 13, 15. For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, and they have closed their eyes, so their eyes cannot see, and their ears cannot hear. Why? Self-imposed blindness, self-imposed deafness. And their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. Father, we thank you today for the power that is in your word. And I pray that today there is an awakening that begins in this church, that it goes out over the radio audience, and this awakening happens in churches all over this country. Lord, I'm asking you, and we're agreeing together, that the church is going to experience a divine awakening before it's eternally too late for this nation. We pray that your spirit will be on your word today and open our understanding that we may see and hear what God is saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you better perk up and listen. This matters to you. I'm going to be very blunt today. I'm going to get right to the point. I want to deal with you and deal with the Word. Something that God has really, really placed on me, and I, I, it, it faces me every single day. Uh, I feel concerned about it every day, and that is the dangerous drift of America away from God. Last week, we talked about whether America is still a Christian nation. And what we saw is that in terms of numbers polled, 76% of people identified themselves as Christian. Well, that's very encouraging sounding. 76% of Americans polled identified themselves as Christians. So we are a Christian nation by profession. But let me take it a step further. For decades, we have been dangerously drifting away from God. And that dangerous drift testifies that though we are a Christian nation by profession, we are not a Christian nation by practice. We are not a Christian nation by practice. Something has happened between the profession and the practice that we need to see and we need to wake up about. As Jesus described in our text, he said, They have closed their eyes, and they have deafened their own ears. Jesus was talking about a self-imposed blindness that was spiritual. There's two kinds of blindness, and I wrote about it in your church bulletin today. There's two kinds of blindness. There is physical blindness that nobody chooses, and there is spiritual blindness that a lot of people choose. Nobody wants to be physically blind, but a lot of people want to be spiritually blind. One well-known Bible preacher stated in 1959, get this, quote, America has become a place of exceptional evil. 1959. What in the world would that Bible teacher think now? If we were in a nation of exceptional evil in 1959, our dangerous drift from God began long ago, not just recently, The dangerous drift can be traced back decades, 
It began when we surrendered the freedom for our children to pray voluntarily at school. We shut God out of the schools and out of the educational system. And as the drift from God continued, teachers were fired and students were expelled for mentioning God in the classroom or praying before a sporting event. Imagine that. In America, that was founded on Christianity, founded on Judeo-Christian ethics and values, we began to fire teachers and expel students for praying and mentioning God. Then as the drift continued to, to worsen, judges were removed from the bench because they portrayed the Ten Commandments in the courtroom or in front of the courthouse. And yet all of our laws have been based, the good ones that is, on the Ten Commandments. Now, as you move forward in the drift we're experiencing, it's almost really hard to believe what greets the eye when we scan the national horizon. As a matter of fact, I wake up every day and I can't believe what I see, can't believe what I hear, can't believe what I observe taking place in the United States. Let me give you an illustration that struck me just last week. And I told you last week that this is going to be rated at least PG-13, so I don't mean to offend anybody, but I've got to tell you the truth. I'm not up here to tickle ears. I'm up here to wake us up. So I want you to catch one glaring example, yet all too familiar, that I read just recently about. Family advocates were recently outraged by a Youth Pride Day event in Boston that ended with a prom inside of Boston City Hall. But this was not just any prom. This prom was sponsored by the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Youth. Children from middle schools and high schools across Massachusetts attended on May 9th some as young as 12 years old. The children and youth participating in this parade were encouraged to display homosexual affection on camera, participate in the gay prom at the Boston City Hall, and were given literature that attempted to Christianize homosexuality. Same-sex children and teens were seen kissing, passionately dancing together on the floor of the city hall, smoking marijuana as young as 12 in Boston City Hall. In upside-down, morally confused America, hello church, right has now become wrong and wrong is right Dark passes for light and light for darkness. Bible morality is now considered immoral, and what the Bible calls immoral is now considered moral. Things that would have shocked Americans just one generation ago now pass for normal. If you took our generation and took it back to the 1950s, the whole nation would go into shock. Isaiah the prophet warned, and I tell you today, sometimes I'm a pastor and I preach uh, uh, messages that are designed to edify the saints, but sometimes I feel a very prophetic touch on me. 
And today I feel that touch. I want us to hear clearly what God is saying. Isaiah the prophet warned what sorrow, what sorrow or woe for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. In other words, woe to those who turn everything upside down and confusion reigns. Woe to those. What sorrow for those. Now, in case you're like the frog in the boiling water who didn't realize he was about to be boiled to death because the temperature rose gradually, let me inform you that Bible morality, truth and wholesomeness, family values, and all that Christian Americans have held dear are right now under full-blown frontal assault from every side. If you're the frog in the boiling water, it has happened so incrementally, so slowly, so gradually over such a long period of time, sometimes we don't realize that our nation has slipped into moral insanity. And there needs to be an awakening. There needs to be a revival. There needs to be a move of God. Have you noticed that we Christians are witnessing right now a daily barrage, daily, of mocking, ridicule, and disdain from a national media that virtually always errs on the side of dangerous liberalism and anti-conservative, anti-Christian sentiments? Have you noticed that? Can I tell you what I think about the national media? I believe the national news media have become one of the most dangerous public entities in America. I don't know about you, but if the media are for it, you can almost always be assured that Bible-believing Christians aren't for it. You say, well, what in the world, Pastor Jeff, is going on? What is taking place in this land? Why are we experiencing these things? Let me tell you what I believe the bottom line is. The bottom line is that America is right now embroiled in her second civil war. But it's not about slavery this time. We are in a civil war that is a culture war of values between opposing worldviews. Now listen carefully to this. The gloves are off and the fight is on. There will be a winner and there will be a loser. On one side, you have those of us who believe in a God to whom we will all answer. A God who is a God of absolute non-negotiable truth and clearly defined moral codes as revealed in Scripture. They cannot be debated with. They cannot be negotiated. They cannot be changed. God changes for no culture, no society, no people. What was true 2,000 years ago is true today, and that gives me security. Now, this group, The one I just spoke of is primarily made up of Orthodox Jewish people and conservative Christians who believe that the Bible is the Word of God. On the other side, you have those who either don't believe in God or who believe in a God of their own making. To them, there is no such thing as absolute truth or absolute morality as revealed in the Word of God. Truth is up for grabs. Truth and morality are negotiable. 
and they are decided by what the individual deems as true and not God's Word. Man is the captain of his own ship. He is the master of his own destiny. A personal God is not involved and does not intervene in the affairs of men. We would call this group secular humanists. Those are the two sides. And the two sides and their values and their morals and their worldview are clashing ferociously in our culture right now. They are locked in a bitter battle for supremacy in our society, in our courts, and in our government. And today, it would appear the humanist side is winning, at least on the cultural political front. Let me give you an example. A bill currently before Congress right now called the Matthew Shepard Act, or hate crime legislation, is being sneaked through the back door by attaching it secretly to a more popular bill. Now, in case you don't know what the Matthew Shepard Act is, let me tell you where it came from. Matthew Shepard was a student at the University of Wyoming who was tortured and subsequently murdered. During the trial, witnesses stated that Shepard was targeted because he was gay. Although one key witness, a key witness, later recanted such a statement in a subsequent television interview. Even the prosecutor of the case did not believe that it was a hate crime. But the militant homosexual community has successfully used Matthew Shepard as an emotional rallying point to push through a liberal Congress this bill that would make it a crime. I want you to hear me now. How many of you enjoy that I can get up here and preach the Word of God? All right. I want you to hear me now. This bill is being pushed through a liberal Congress, and it would make it a crime for me or any other pastor to stand in the pulpit and preach out of Romans 1, which condemns the homosexual lifestyle. You say, well, what is their reasoning for that? Here's their reasoning. Their reasoning is to teach or preach that homosexuality is a sin, is to incite prejudice and violence against homosexuals. Well, let's follow this line of logic for just a minute. To preach against theft, does that mean that I am putting at risk or in danger thieves who would then bear undue prejudice for their thievery? No, I preach against theft so that people won't steal. If God has in His Word that a certain lifestyle is wrong, you don't preach that out of hate. You don't preach that out of prejudice. You preach, you preach it out of concern that if God says it's wrong, then it must be damaging. So I'm actually preaching it out of love and concern, not hate. But the militant homosexual activists of our day have so successfully brainwashed our culture into believing that if I say that I believe that lifestyle is wrong, I am a hate preacher. Well, that must mean that I'm a, I hate murderers, and I hate thieves, and I hate adulterers, and I hate fornicators. I'm full of hate. Because the Bible preaches against many sins, and there are many sexual sins. And if I preach against it, 
does not mean that I'm full of hate. It means I'm obeying the Word of God and I'm saying it out of compassion so that they will repent and be saved and be delivered and walk in the will of God. And can I say that, do you know how rare a message like this is in today's American pulpit? I actually get letters from people saying, how courageous of you to preach like this. Well, it's the way preachers used to preach all over the land. What has happened to them? It's time to wake up. But now, this unconstitutional, anti-free speech bill has already been approved 249 to 175 in the House. And it will be the subject of a Senate committee hearing in four days on June 25th. Richard Land of the Southern Baptist Convention has said that such a law, by definition, requires judges to determine what those accused of crimes were thinking. So under hate crime legislation, the Bible teacher who simply expounds on Romans 1 would become the criminal. Think about that. A criminal. And the person practicing an immoral lifestyle would become the innocent protected victim in the United States of America. One of my firmest rights as an American is the right of free speech. And I don't see the secular humanists real concerned about what they say about our side. I see them mocking, ridiculing, saying things that might just get me killed. Hate crime legislation, if it is passed, would open up a Pandora's box of misery like we have never seen. Think about that. And if you think it can't happen here, I want you to think again. I want to tell you clearly, it can happen here. And it will happen here if Christians don't stand up. The criminalization of religious speech, such as speech against the practice of homosexuality, has already been enacted in other countries. For instance... The pastor of a Swedish Pentecostal church was sentenced to one month in prison by a Swedish court for, quote, hate speech against homosexuals, end quote, based on a sermon he preached citing biblical references to homosexuality. One concerned critic wrote these words, quote, in Europe, people are starting to be jailed for saying what they think. You might remember that George Orwell in the famous book 1984, he warned of this very thing. In Orwell's novel, it was the job of the thought police to uncover and punish thought crime and thought criminals. And that is exactly where hate crime legislation would take us today. If it were to pass and become law, The chilling effect it would have on pulpits all over America cannot be measured. Because if it starts there, that I can't teach out of Romans 1, where will it end? Where will it stop? If you open that door, even a crack, I tell you today, the secular humanist, anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-Bible crowd would see it as a huge encouragement and open door to muzzle the church on virtually every topic 
I do not want to lose my liberty to preach the Word of God. And we better wake up, church, put on the armor of God, put on the breastplate of righteousness, stand up, say something. Can you imagine a judge and jury would have to make a judgment on a Christian teacher's thoughts? What his motives had been for teaching it? This is just one example of the dangerous drift of our country from Judeo-Christian values to a secular, humanistic, and godless philosophy. Just one example. See, the drift that was a gradual slide down the slippery slope has now become falling off the cliff. Now you say, well, Pastor, what do we do? What is the answer? I'm going to give you what I believe is the answer. There is hope, and there is a strong hope, but there is only one hope. And that one hope is you. I'm going to say it again. It's you. It's not just about me. It's about you. How would you like it if I had to stand up here on Sunday morning and do three points in a poem, read some Keats, read some poets, read some Shakespeare, and give you a little unity word for the day because I could not venture into the Scriptures. What are you saying, Pastor Jeff? Here's what I'm saying. First of all, there it is. I wanted to put it up here, unusual for me on a Sunday, but I want you to see it and write it down. First of all, you got to own it. This is your fight. I want you to say it with me, own it. It's my fight. It's not just my fight. It's your fight. Because if I can't preach the Word of God, you suffer. If I can't preach the Word of God, you're in trouble. You say, well, Pastor, I came to church to be edified today. This is a downer. Hey, I'm called to tell you the truth, and you need to know what is going on in our country. So you got to own it. It's your fight. You remember the story of Esther and Mordecai and Haman. Those are the three main characters in the book of Esther. Haman was an evil man who was associated with the king, an assistant to the king in Persia. Mordecai was Esther's Jewish uncle. The Bible says that Haman loved to go out in public where everybody was forced to bow to him. But every time he would walk by that rascally Mordecai, Mordecai refused to bow. He would not bow and pay homage to Haman. Haman got so mad, so angry, he went to the king and manipulated the king into passing an edict that was the first, would have been the first Jewish holocaust. The king passed the edict that every Jew in the kingdom of Persia would be slaughtered. It was ethnic cleansing. Mordecai heard about it. He went to Esther. There's only one choice here, Esther. You're going to have to weave your way into the kingdom. You're going to have to approach the king. You're going to have to intercede for your people. And he said to her, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's a rhetorical question. He was saying, Esther, you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Church, I say to you, you are today's Esther. You have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We can no longer sit by and just watch this fog, this toxic fog of evil creep into our country. It is time for us to realize we have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
Nehemiah in another day, in another age. They were rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, coming out of Babylonian captivity. They had gotten halfway to building the wall, and they got discouraged. They started losing the fight. They drifted into a fog of apathy. And Nehemiah went to them and said, I looked and arose and said to the leaders and to the rest of the people, read it with me, everybody, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Y'all aren't just, y'all are being so quiet today. I want you to preach to me. All right, let's try it. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. What are we fighting for? We're fighting for freedom for our sons, freedom for our daughters, freedom for our wives, and freedom for our homes. So say with me, own it. It's my fight. The second thing, pray hard. It's your might. The Bible says in Jeremiah, call upon me and I will show you great and mighty things you have not known. What an incredible promise. Call upon me. Church, the greatest weapon that we've got is the weapon of prayer. Can I tell you something? We're in spiritual warfare squared. We're in spiritual warfare to the 10th power. It is time for the church to realize we're not battling flesh and blood. But this is a spiritual attack against you and me and our liberty and our freedom in this country. It says in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. can you read it with me? If my people, turn to your neighbor and say, that's you. If my people, read it good and loud, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, shout the last part, and heal their land. But do you notice, do you notice the key word right there? If I can find my little dealy, well, if. If my people, if my people, okay? Now, the last one, say with me, speak out. It's your right. This is the one I really want to impress upon you. Mordecai also said to Esther these words, If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. What he's saying is, Esther, if you decide to do nothing and you keep silent and you don't speak up and you don't make your voice heard, God's going to find somebody else to do it. But there will be a gap of time between when you renege on what God's calling you to do and when he raises up somebody else. And in that gap of time, Esther, you'll die and so will your relatives. See, anytime we don't rise to the call of God, there is always a loss. And so he says, if you keep quiet, and I say to you, church, we can no longer keep quiet. Esther decided to speak out. He said, well, what can I do? I'm going to tell you what you can do. You can call your congressman and senator. You can Google hate crime legislation on your computer, and you'll find tons of sites that give you the opportunity to sign a petition. This week, I sent a considerable sum of money 
to an organization fighting this hate crime legislation. Because, folks, this can't pass. It can't happen. You have no idea what will do the church if it does. I'm not being an alarmist. I'll preach no matter what. But I don't want to preach in jail. Say, would they really actually arrest you? Absolutely. You know they would. Of course they would. And they would do it in the name of God. And they would say to you and to me, this was not politically correct. You have no right to judge another person's lifestyle. That was hate speech. And so, therefore, you are going to be shut down until you learn your lesson. Not me. Not us. Not here. I love the Word. You love the Word. Stand up. Speak up. Man up. We cannot let something like this go. I want you to become activists. Christian activists. So, Pastor, I just kind of keep my faith to myself. That's not Bible faith. If you keep it to yourself, you don't have much to keep. Say with me, own it. It's your fight. Pray, it's your might. Speak out, it's your right. Can we stand together today? Say, well, boy, this isn't what I expected on Father's Day. Well, let me tell you, if it wasn't coming down the pike June 25th and there was not a sinister attack against you and me in this country. I'd give you a little Father's Day message, but I guess this is a Father's Day message. Father God is calling us to stand up, men. Believe it or not, as they came here from England to avoid religious persecution, now we're having to fight in the middle of religious persecution for the rights they came here to get. How ironic. If you're in a room of people and they come off with something like some hate crime nonsense, say something. If you're at work and a conversation happens and they are revising the history of your nation, or they are mocking and ridiculing your God, or they are justifying something like a hate crime bill, don't sit there. You're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. God's on you. Father, I just thank you that, Lord, America used to be a Christian nation But, Lord, there's been a slide. Yet, Lord, we believe today that there can be a turning. But your people must own the fight. And your people must pray with might. And your people must speak up. It's their right. And I pray, Lord God, and we agree together as a church, that you're going to turn this back. In the name of Jesus. Now, will you take a minute and say, Lord, help me to be bold and not timid. Help me 
to actively stand up for you. Would you just take a minute and pray that way?